Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome back one and all. Here we are again. Yes, delighted to be with you for a few more episodes of Q Commentator. Uh, I saw Irish rugby legend Brian O'Driscoll comment uh, this week about whether podcasts are the new wedding videos, um, assuming he's suggesting, uh, suggesting that everyone seems to want one or have one. Um, well, I'm glad that you like this one and that you've come back for more. Um, my name's Nick Heath, and in case you're new here, which I doubt, but this uh, this series is a chance for me to sit down with a well-known sporting voice or two and find out how they view the art of commentary and why they do what they do. Uh, now, here's a little bit of confession time. Um, you're probably not getting a full series of six episodes in this run. Now, I can only apologise for that. Um, perhaps blame our big sporting summer. Um, it's just been tricky to get hold of, uh, well, certainly the cricket voices currently, because we're recording this during the Ashes series. Um, and another couple of key names I'm gunning for are also incredibly busy in athletics. There's a big football name that I'm trying to tie down as well. Uh, but I wanted to get these three episodes out ahead of the Rugby World Cup, uh, partly as two out of them, uh, out of the three voices coming up, are rugby men. So before I introduce this week's guest, can I please do a last minute marking of your card? Um, If you've managed to download and tune into this within 48 hours of it coming out, because you might still want to get a ticket to Q Commentator live, because we're making an appearance to record a special live episode with former BBC Rugby Union correspondent and commentator, Mr Ian Robertson. Uh, We are part of Podcast Live, which is taking place at Twickenham, podcastlive.com for more information and to book tickets. Um, our rugby podcast friends, the Egg Chasers boys, will be there. Will Greenwood and his Sky podcast will be there, along with the Under the Sticks guys from the Pro 14. Promises to be a fantastic event, podcastlive.com. You can get a ticket for the whole day for just £35 with their twofer offer. I would dearly love to see you there. Right then, uh, let us huddle in and get settled for today's guest, Sky Sports commentator, Mr Miles Harrison. A name that sings with all the class and style of a 1950s movie icon. Um, but he is a broadcaster and you'll shortly hear how it all started for Miles and how and why he does what he does. Uh, one of the main themes I love from this podcast is how Miles refers to being part of a production team and getting ready to do a commentary on a Saturday and how it's in line with how sports people prepare for their big day, the butterflies, the routines, the journey to the stadium, and of course, being part of a team. Uh, We also talk 
about Miles' long-term partnership with Stuart Barnes, who, uh, well, may not thank us for a couple of the uh, offhand comments we make. Um, there are some real belly laughs in here too, as Miles provided great company and an honesty and insight to his work as a commentator. Uh, and this one also holds the record as the longest one to edit. We spoke for a full hour and 40 minutes. Um, so if you want the full extended uncut version, um, well, maybe I can put that out at some point. But in the meantime, slightly trimmed down to make it more palatable. Um, it is ready for your delectation. Please do keep the ratings and reviews coming via iTunes. Uh, shout about it on Twitter via at QCommentator2. As I am now pleased to say, Q Commentator Miles Harrison. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. A love of sport as a young man, politics and economics at York. Um, let's not mess about. That's a, that's a fairly decent basis to suggest that you were already quite keen to, to get things under your belt and get moving into, into broadcasting. A, a post-grad course in radio journalism, all of which came after working at Radio Trent in Nottingham during your sixth form. Um, you knew where you wanted to go, didn't you? I think I did. From the moment I emerged into the world, sport was what really mattered to me. Almost to the point of being an obsession, I think, as a child. Yeah. I was very young when I got into sport because my father's love of sport and also my older brother was into sport. Uh, and that got me there quite quickly. So when people say, what's your first sporting memory? Mm. I say 1971 is the year I remember first of all, John Taylor's kick. Wales versus Scotland. You won't know any of this. Will you? <laughs> I'm aware of it. You're all. aware of it. Yeah, I saw it live. Uh, I was only five, so it's quite young to start, isn't it? To be that into sport. Yeah. The cup final that year, Arsenal Liverpool. I remember very well. In fact, Test match cricket. I mean, I can't remember much of when I was five at all, but you remember these moments. Oh yeah, imprinted on my mind. Wow. I can remember the seat that I was in for Arsenal Liverpool, being Charlie George the next day, lying in the garden, pretending I'd scored the cup final goal. But certainly by 71, I was into my cricket as well. So yeah, I got there early and I wanted to play sport all the time. In my spare time, I, I was doing everything, trying everything. I also realised that I didn't have the talent to go right to be a professional sportsman. Okay. And that was a realisation very early on, actually. But it didn't stop me enjoying being part of the sporting process and enjoying playing the games. But running alongside that was a love of the broadcasting of sport and watching it. So that was in there from a very, very early age. So moving on then into how the broadcasting career started to take shape, tell me about the role Brian Clough played in your accession to, to working with BBC Radio York, a formidable character. Totally formidable character. What happened while I was at City University doing the broadcast journalism course, well, it happened before that in a way, mm. because in those days, to get onto the course was the key thing. You knew if you got onto one of these very few options for potential broadcasters around the country, then as part of that course, there would be some form of working attachment. And because of the way the job market was then, the opportunity, because the training had happened, it had been done for the organisation that you would be joining, the opportunity would more than likely, if you could do the job, would be there at the end of it. Yeah. So it was about getting onto the course. So there I am at York University, having had the time of my life, and in a funny sort of way, just pulled back a little bit from doing the things that I thought I was going to try and do for the rest of my life. 
not least meeting my wife-to-be and enjoying all of that. Talking of the things you're going to do for the rest of your life. (laughs) With respect. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so you enjoy just being a student and the politics and the history, which were other loves of mine, and just just the joy of learning. But there came a point where it has to crystallise. You have to move on. You have to do something with it. And I thought, how do I get onto this course? Mm. And as part of the application process... You had to do an interview, and they said within the form, look, don't go out and try and interview somebody that's famous. Yeah. Talk to your mum or your dad if they've got a story. We just want to hear yeah. you interview to sound like you can do it yeah. when, when you join the course. And I thought, that all very well and good. But my mum's not going to be good enough. Well, I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, my parents were great. Well, I don't, but I don't mean, you know, per se, yeah. that person. You just, I just you, wanted you thought, to stand out. You thought a little bit more is going to go well here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I went big. I'd been a Forest fan growing up, and I wrote to Brian Clough. Oh, wow. And I said, look, I'm at university. I want to go on this course interviewing someone of your ilk. I'm sure will be eye-catching or ear-catching. Yeah. And I didn't think about it again for a while and then I got a message from my parents who said we've just had Brian Clough's secretary call us would you be able to come and interview him wow in a week or so's time you must have been cock a hoop oh the heart was racing I was cock a hoop I couldn't drive in those days or I didn't have a car yeah uh, my girlfriend who wife to be yeah uh, she drove me down to Nottingham uh, shaking like a leaf I didn't have any equipment I just had my tape recorder I used yeah. to play the Smiths and the Jam in my uh, student room on. And I pressed play and record. As you would. And he was gold dust. He was absolutely brilliant. And he played a bit of a game with me as well that day. He kept me waiting with the rest of the journos, you know, the the hard-nosed journos, the Mm. the Fleet Street guys. Which I guess gave you a chance to see what it was like for them. Oh, what an eye-opener it was. And there was I shaking like a leaf in the corner waiting for my turn. And then at the end of that uh, session w- with the with the press, he invited me into his office and he did this interview. And then, as part of my interview to get on the course, the guy that ran the ran the course said, "Look, you know, you've interviewed well or well enough, but you were coming on the basis of that interview." Yeah, it was just so different. Uh, and I thought, well, you could have said that in the application process; it well, might have yeah. given others a chance. But it just showed that. That kind of thing can make an impact, well, and it, then and, it, and it's showing it's showing the nerve to go high, isn't it? As well, and just go well. That's not going to be good enough, and actually, that it might stand you out in an application. But ideally, they're going to think, well, that's going to stand him out during the course, probably. And, and yeah, it, and I do believe in that. I believe that a message that should go out to anybody wanting to do the job that we do is to shoot high, mm. go asking, knock on doors. And then don't take no for an answer. Yeah. But I was very lucky in that Brian Clough came back to me and did that for me. And he had a heart of gold. Yes, he had his, you know, harder side in the way he conducted himself with his players. But they all believed in him and they knew him deep down to be a very, very good human being. Yeah. And he showed that to me again. Because when I was on the course and I got an attachment with BBC Radio Nottingham, I did the same again. I 
went along to do an interview with him. And nobody was getting interviews with Brian Clough at that time. He'd done one of his media blackouts. Right. And the sports editor at Radio Nottingham said, look, you've got no chance. You, You will not get this interview. We're not being able to talk to him at the moment. I thought, you know what, I've got a little bit of a chance. I've got a relationship, actually. Yeah, potentially (laughs) this might happen. And I think Brian knew exactly what he was doing. He was maybe ruffling a few feathers in the Mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I'm not talking to you, but I'm talking to this kid. Exactly. Uh, And I did the interview, and it was for BBC Nottingham. He knew that at the time, but it had been superb. It was for an FA Cup tie that was coming up at the weekend, which I was going to cover. Uh, on the attachment and I said look I know this is for BBC Nottingham and we'll play it and we'll love it and the sports editor will give me a massive tick for doing this Mm. but could I possibly send it to network to Radio 2 and he said you are a cheeky what's it in the way that he would say young man yeah and but he looked in my eyes I think I just saw a young bloke who just wanted to get on he said do it do it now. He said, if I think about it in 10 minutes, I'll probably say no, but just do it. Amazing. And I sent it down to uh, to Network, and it was noted. And when I arrived at the game at the weekend, actually, Bob Shannon, who was then the football producer, now very high up in the BBC, yeah. said, look, you know, you're young, you haven't even got a job yet on a full-time basis. Go away, learn your craft, learn your trade, but we've got our eyes on you. So it was a lovely thing oh, to be said magic. to you at that point of your career. Yeah. And I did apply and I did get knockbacks to various things, rightly so, because I wasn't ready to do them. Mm-hmm. But I was always in the process and eventually they decided to lift me out of local radio and give me the chance on network. And Brian Clough was at the heart of that. There you go. That's an amazing start. I mean, you then had some time with, with Radio Leeds before BBC Radio Sport then then came to you. Cricket, football, rugby, were those the sort of the main three you were covering? And uh, was there anything else? I, I, I know to, Wimbledon was, was something that you covered as well at some point. I mean, the nature of, I guess, BBC Radio at that time was the mm. chance to pop up on, on various things. Yeah, I, I've always enjoyed the tennis I was always a bit of a big time fan of tennis. I, I like the slams, yeah. like us all. Uh, and working for the BBC, the opportunity at Radio Sport came along. They said, would you like to be involved in the tennis team? I said, yeah, I'd love to give that a go. Mm. So I always fancied tennis commentary as a, as a very different art form. And it, I could see it being very valuable to me, whether I saw that as a long-term career progression, which I don't think I did, mm. but I like the people in tennis and everything about the sport. It's such a different pace as well. Of a, different of a, of a, pace, different style of commentary. Yeah. And I thought that could really help in the final analysis when you decide what route you go down, be that rugby, be that cricket, be that football, mm. to have done that tennis... The chance to be a Wimbledon commentator with that kind of uh, love of all sport was was, was never going to be turned down. Mm. Do, you, do you remember your sort of first commentary moment? The first, for, I mean, it must have been, I guess, while you were doing the regional BBC stuff. Do we need to sort of jump back a stage? Yeah. And cover that and, and, and your thoughts going into it. I've, I've got this. I can do this. How was I, that? I do remember that first moment. It was Radio Trent, actually, when I was still in the sixth form. Mm. And I just helped out like any kid of that age would do, make the coffees. You'd have the old rip and read in those days where from IRN it was chuntering in the latest sports news. I used to run down the stairs to the studio, give it to the presenter, a guy called Brian Tansley. 
those listening in Nottingham of a certain age will know exactly who that man is. Right. Or, or sadly was, he's left us now way too young. Just a great local broadcaster who had ridden on the back of Forrest winning the European Cup and winning the, you know, just wonderful times yeah. for, for Nottinghamshire sport. The cricket team was winning the championship. There are so many of those characters out there that, that are legends in many people's lifetimes, but, yes. are, but are not known nationally. Isn't I just, I, that, that's a whole other series, perhaps. But Well, it is, and they are very important characters yeah. because they were very happy to work in that patch. Mm. And why wouldn't they be mm. so varied and that connection with our local community? But they were also really keen to foster and engineer talent and see it through. And that is very special for someone of that age and to give someone the belief. And he said to me, Brian said to me, he said, look, you're not here just to make the coffee, are you? You, You're itching to have a go. He knew my love of rugby. He said the normal Nottingham rugby report, a very good Nottingham rugby side at the time, Rob Andrew, Brian Moore, Chris Oti, it was a proper team. of course. He said, look, he's not going to be able to do it this weekend. Would you like to have a go? Nah, you're all right. <laughs> and I said, yes, I'd love to. But what I'd really, really like before I did that, and I think it's quite a strong thing to say as a youngster, could you give me one of the junior matches just to go and report on first, just to feel that I'm able to do this? Because I think I can. Yeah, I've done it when I've been playing sport in my head. Yeah. I've done it when I've played Sabutio as a tiny child. I've always been the commentator as well as the yeah. player. But I've never actually done it for real. So he said, that's a really good idea. I'd take that on board. So he sent me to a junior cup match. And the only phone on the ground was in the toilet. <laughs> so I was reporting from the gents through a little window. Who, so puts, st- a, who puts a phone who in the toilet? <laughs> Do they run out of pay for a lot? I don't know. But anyway, so I'm looking through this little slit. Also, looking through this little slit in the window, reporting on this game. And at half time, of course, gentlemen did what they had to do at half time <laughs> on a rainy day. And the presenter said, "He could hear this sort of ambient noise in the background." He said, "My goodness, it started to rain where you are." <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't disagree, but you know, that early report, just those those thirty <laughs> those thirty seconds in that kind of environment to yeah. think of what to say. I mean, it really tested me thinking back. But it was a it was a great thing to be part of and be involved in. I yeah. thought, you know what, I could do this. Yeah. I, I could do this for a living. And then obviously, I got the chance to do Nottingham rugby and. Yeah. And things progress from there. Yeah, okay. And the rain is quite pungent uh, as well. <laughs> um, was rugby always looming largest then? I mean, that's kind of where you started. You were doing full commentary games on radio for, for the BBC yeah. as well. Was that sort of always where you were destined? You mentioned your father as well, who, who you said was, was sort of a big part of, of the rugby influence. What was his role in that? Well, he played, not, not to any great level. Again, we've got the same genes. Mm. But he just absolutely loved it. And yeah. we spent time together watching 73 Barbarians. I remember sitting down watching that with him. And that was a moment. That was a real moment when I thought, this game is absolutely fantastic. Mm. And I'd liked it when Nottingham beat the RAF 3-0 at Island Avenue. But, yeah. you know, you know, deep down, that convinces you that you've got a love of the game. Well, if it you was like one a, thing like yeah. a 3-0. But that barbarian game, 
absolutely transformed my view of how the game of rugby could be played. Well, how could it not? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, actually, when I was starting out, I thought, well, I could, I could try football, but I've been brought up in a rugby background. And then I thought, you're going to have to start from the bottom here, Nick. Can you cope with watching a terrible non-league game of football? Or could you cope with watching, you know, old drunkians thirds against whoever else? <laughs> mm. And I just thought, I can still get something out of a crap rugby game. <laughs> But I would find it incredibly tedious watching terrible football. And that was like, yeah, that's it. It's because you just have a love of that game and, and what goes on at every, at any level. Yeah, I, mean, I love my football as well. Always have and worked in it at radio. And my career could have gone down that path, maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah yes, it could have done. I mean, it was obvious. I was, I was a football commentator and I've pushed it more or... You know, I had a stayed at the BBC. I think that might have been a path I would have gone down. Yeah. Cricket too, that was always an option and in the back of my mind. Covered county cricket home and away for three or four seasons with BBC Leeds, whatever it was. And that was that was just, to me, a lover of cricket was just a wonderful way to spend your time. So there's all these different paths it could go down. But rugby became an opportunity. There was a chance to commentate alongside Ian Robertson. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to turn that down, was no. I? And as soon as I started doing it, uh, it just felt so natural. It really did. And uh, there's a genuine, I have to say, genuine love of the game that uh, has been there from day one and will always be there. 1994 then, Sky comes a-calling. I think this is where the O Fortuna music plays um, because the landscape is changing in sport mm. when a broadcaster like, like Sky arrives on the scene. Um, notably the same year one Stuart Barnes retires from England with a groin injury in South Africa. Mm. Um, what are your memories of, of the first game that you did with Sky? And I'm not asking this in the, the follow-up out of any um, sense of bitching, but because Sky were, were turning up wanting to do things so differently, what, were there any immediate notices to you as... Oh, this is this is different as to how I was doing things at the BBC or I can see their ambition of, of where they're wanting to go with this what, what were those early days with Sky like? Well I can see the ambition that was obvious and that was one of the major reasons why I joined the company mm. and took my career in that direction and it was very quick and early on in my career to be saying look I'm going to be a specialist television commentator mm. and there were bosses at the BBC said look if you take this route you'll lose this generalist approach that you have at the moment that you seem to be enjoying so much. Yeah. So it took me four or five weeks to decide. Right. It really did. I remember being at the French Open and uh, the phone was going and Vic Wakeling, who was the boss at Sky then, he'd heard me commentate on a Calcutta Cup match on the radio with Robbo. And he'd been driving along knowing that Sky were in for live club rugby at that stage. And he said that he thought... At that moment, I was the person that he wanted to do it. Wow. So he's come calling. He wants me to do the job. That's flattering. It's lovely. But it's also, as I say, very early on in my career. Mm. And I still had so many other things to do in other sports and with the BBC. But there was a concentration of the mind moment where I thought, you know what? This might not come around again for quite a long time. Somebody else is going to do it. And I always feel when you get a job offer in life or there's an opportunity in life, if you would be jealous of somebody else doing it while you're doing something else, then I think you should go for it. Yeah. If you wouldn't be jealous, you think, well, good luck to them. Yeah. That's for them at the moment. This is for me now, maybe. Yeah. 
then obviously you can live with Well, interesting it. previous conversations have touched on that. I know when Bob Ballard talked about the, the ice hockey semi-final or whatever it was in, in, in our conversation with him, and, and he said, I said, oh, I'm not quite sure I'm ready. And then mm. the moment the other guy started doing it, he went, do you know what, I was ready. Yeah. And now I'm... Totally get that. So, so infuriated, it's yeah. not me doing it. So I would have been jealous. I would have been jealous. And I thought of all the... Without being too, I don't know, over-emotional or trite about it, I thought about all the other people that had contributed in my career to get me to that stage. You mentioned names in the past, someone like a Dave Callahan, again, sadly no longer with us. But what an influence he was on my career. Another classic local broadcaster who brought the likes of me and Champs, John Champion, Peter Drury, mm. Dave Woods, were all together there, wow. BBC Leeds at the same time. And Callie just wanted us to progress. There was a sign there in broadcasting terms, the games I'd done with Robbo. I felt ready in a way yeah. to do it. And then to go back to your original point, Nick, I wasn't ready. <laughs> I really wasn't. I hadn't taken on I was okay I got by yeah but I needed time to settle into the role and I'm very very grateful to this day that Sky gave me that time to grow they backed me they saw enough they knew I was nowhere near the finished article what what needed finishing just learning the art of television commentary in comparison to radio commentary. So were, you, were you babbling yeah probably talking too much uh, the classics you know the uh, the difference between television and radio, letting the picture do the majority of the talking and having the confidence to do that. Mm. I remember at the time after that first game, which was Bath against Bristol, first live game, there was a television critic review. Now, I've never... You come from an acting background, so mm. you'll understand this. Mm. And you know, my mum was an actress as well. And she would always say about criticisms of performance don't believe the good ones because if you believe the good ones you have to believe the bad ones entirely yes and the answer is probably somewhere in the middle with everybody but there are certain people you do growing up respect and there are certain names that you will listen to there's a guy called john bromley who was head of itv sport for many years big name in broadcasting I remember he wrote in the Telegraph a TV critic's review of our first performance on Sky. And he said about me, he said, Harrison is beyond hope. Oh. I thought, blimey, there's, wow. there's not a lot of wriggle room there. <laughs> so I mean, that, that really stuck with me. And I thought, I'm going to prove this guy wrong. That's kind of stick it on the changing room wall stuff, though, isn't it? It is. It is. And I totally respect that view because it came from someone who knew the craft and knew the art. Now, there, there are reviewers out there who've never done it, who've never, never broadcast it before. Yeah, yeah. Quite. and even though they're perfectly allowed to have their view, you sometimes think, and I see a player's point of view here, and I've always tried to remember this in my broadcasting, in my commentary, I see a player's point of view when they are criticised by someone who's never done it. Yeah. Now, I think it's important for someone like me to have played the game to understand it in that way. But I don't know what it feels like at a breakdown in an international rugby match to be hit that hard, to yeah. be under that much pressure. Yeah. And I have absolutely no right to comment on that aspect of the performance. And that's where your co-commentator comes in, of course. Mm. The ex-player, that is their right to talk about that. But here was a television review from someone who knew television. I thought, I'm really going to have to up my game here. I'm going to have to work very hard. 
And there is a happy ending. Because in 1990... But you've had a 25-year career with Sky Mars. It's, it's a pretty happy ending. Well, yeah, yeah, take your point. Not, not an ending. But it, but it was three years later, actually. <laughs> yeah, okay. And it was the 97 Lions Tour, which is the first time that Sky had moved into big broadcasting of rugby. We'd done the club game, but you know a Lions Tour. Yeah, it's next level. Oh, it's different gravy. And it was Cape Town, building up to the test match there, and in the hotel was John Bromley. And I was sitting in the corner, quietly having my breakfast, and he came over to me. And he introduced himself and he said to me about that review in 94. And he said, look me in the eye. He said, I was wrong. Fantastic. He said, you've proved me wrong. You are... No, he said, you are proving me wrong. Okay, nice. He said, now this is big. Go out, deliver. Do your best broadcast on your biggest match. Yeah. You've got it in you. Yeah. And that made me feel so good. I bet. That really, I can feel it now. Yeah, I can Absolutely tell. Absolutely lifted me yeah. at just the right time. Yeah. So again, very grateful for that honest observation, maybe brutally honest, mm. but you, know, you have to be able to take criticism and learn from it and move on and better yourself. Did he know you'd seen it? I don't think he... Well, he wouldn't have known it. He didn't know no. me. We'd never spoken before. Right, so yeah, okay. So that was the very first time. Wow. Yeah, but well, uh, I think he would have known. I would have read it. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, so tell me about a week's preparation then, if you're on commentary on a Saturday afternoon. It's to get to that point where you are able to perform in your best possible way. Mm. I think the comparisons between the sports person and the broadcaster are massive. Yeah. And I think anybody who moves out of sport to become a broadcaster really appreciates that and feeds off it and loves the fact that you get up in the morning and you have the adrenaline before the game or the broadcast. Yeah. You're often staying away with a team in a hotel. Yeah. You'll get a pep talk from the director or the producer like a manager. You'll get a little bit of coaching from people who've done it before, who've got more caps than you if you're just <laughs> arriving on the scene. Yeah. And sports people love that. Yeah. They love that environment, and I totally get it. And in many ways, but I knew I couldn't be that person. I wanted to play for the Lions. I wanted to walk out on the first morning of an Ashes test and score 100. Of course I did. That was the dream. Mm. But when you realise you can't do it, what's the next best thing? To be there in the best unpaid, let's not forget that, unpaid seat in the house to have the best view, to talk about the game that you love, to meet the people that are your heroes. But you're not going to complain about that, are you? So, yeah, that was and remains to this day the joy of the job. But it's only a joy if you are doing the job to the best of your ability every time. Mm. And I love what you say about games that don't matter. Yeah. They've got to feel as important as test matches as well. Yeah. They have got to be approached, if anything, in preparation terms. Your preparation is much more for the game that really isn't going to have the big crowd, doesn't have the star names. Yeah. It's more rewarding because the stories that you're bringing to the audience are about players they might not necessarily know. Yeah. But you're going to have to put more in for a game like that than you would do for a big Lions test. Yeah. In very simple terms, I have a team sheet 
names nice and big. So in those, uh, what they call them, the, the, the clutch moments that yeah. you could just go and look at. I mean, it's dimly lit. because they're Dimly lit, numbered, slightly obscure, not yeah. quite sure. That you, you remember how to say the player's name under pressure and it's written down there phonetically. And then all those little facts about those players that, again, are much easier for the games that feature irregular teams or teams that are not always on the television because the stories are new. Mm. So the challenge with players that you do know a lot about is to think of something that's relevant editorially, mm. relevant to that week, that is pertinent, should you require to add to the picture. And I have another sheet, aside from my team sheet, of editorial lines along that mm sort of line over what is relevant historically yes about this game that might come up again but from all the rugby that we watch related to the two teams that are involved in that match where are they at Mm -hmm. how's their season going in the most very general terms but you know the kind of comment that the the commentator is expected to be across it's context isn't it it is context all the time But have the confidence to see that this is just preparation. It's just about getting you there. So in commentary terms, when you run out of the tunnel and you're ready to go and broadcast, that you're in the best possible place and only use the bits that are relevant. Otherwise, you just become an annoyance to the viewer. And that's the big change. I think that's what John Bromley was driving at maybe in those early broadcast or that that day one broadcast maybe Mm. I was just trying to get too much out trying to show how clever I supposedly was well it's the danger of wanting to show your prep yes and actually it should almost just sound like you're a you're a good commentator not someone who's trying to show off their homework make it sound easy the biggest change in the job has been the sophistication of the audience that's what I've really noticed in all of these years oh really the amount the audience knows Mm. because you're in that privileged position of being expected to be the person that knows so much, but now you're expected to be that person that knows so much because your audience knows so much. Yeah. And it keeps you sharp. Yeah. It keeps you really on top of it. You should be watching absolutely everything you can from every competition around the world to be able to say, I'm somewhere near where my audience is. Yeah. And... A company like Sky, on the on the occasions that I've been fortunate enough to work work for Sky or, or BT Sport, there is a support network of people that are putting together information as well. So you do get a little bit of help on that. Mm. How valuable is that, and and how much do you feel you know that adds to that sense almost when you tap in when you talk about being part of a team and wanting that environment to go well? Actually, part of what's got me here is the info pack I was sent that week because I'm I'm backed by a brilliant team of of statisticians or, or people who are helping research this info with me. Yeah, I love that. I love that being part of a team. It's the sports person in us, isn't it? And so much credit has to go to the people that support us as the you know the front line, the the voice or the face. And we are just one part of it. I love that aspect of television mm. as well. To me, the beauty of it, and it took me a while to realise it, why I liked it so much, is that you are just one small element as part of this massive team on site. Yet every member of that team is just as important to enable that broadcast to get to air. Yeah. It couldn't be done without all aspects of it working. Yeah. And that to someone who gets sport and who gets team ethic 
is a really powerful thing. Yeah, and it can make it sometimes a little dif- difficult to take the plaudits when you're just the visible bit of the swan above the water, knowing yeah. all the work that's gone under yeah. it, isn't it? Um, approaching a commentary then, do you do anything to get the voice there? I do now, and this goes back to a few years ago. Where my wife and I both got whooping cough. Oh, I had that a couple of years ago. And you Not think- funny at oh, all. no. And it... I, do they call it the hundred day cough or yeah. something? Well, oh, it's brutal for me. It was three hundred sixty five days. It was, it was brutal. And for the job that we do, it really affected a season of mine. Mm. Really affected it. And as part of the getting better process from that, I saw I was recommended to go and see because of my profession mm. a voice coach, which wow. I'd never actually done before, mm. and it was a massive eye opener. Wow. And part of that process to get me and my voice back to where it should be. I mean, there was one game I did. I sounded like Barry White, which actually I, I, I quite liked. <laughs> yeah. People say, who was that guy who did the game at King's Home the other night? <laughs> I think it's me. Uh, but you know, that was where it could work. There were other games that I was squeaking away or even the voice was just cutting out. It just wasn't there. Yeah, okay. And that's no good when you do my job. And it was going on and on and on and on. Thankfully, the treatment was good or the voice coaching helped. And I've continued doing that. So mm. I will warm the voice up now. And I'll try and do it in private because it's really... It, you're making silly noises. You're making silly noises and your lips are... In the, in the are, car on the way there. Yeah, your lips are bubbling away. and yeah. uh, You sound like a trim phone, that yeah. kind of thing, yeah. trying to go through the range. Trilling away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I, I do do that now. Yeah. And I do find it helps. Mm. I mean, on site, I always quite like to be asked to do an interview or a highlights edit from a game that happened the night before because it warms you up. Yeah. You don't want those first words to be the first words that you've actually broadcast. You know, I'm talking about the live game now. Yeah. The first well, words of like, the day. It's a bit like the moment you don't want to answer the phone to that important business call and maybe the first words of your day when someone says I'll phone you at 8 o'clock and you go great you go morning yes. oh sorry is that Miles uh, it's Barry um, so yeah, yeah it's got a bit of that to it what do you think of your voice oh dear that's for others to answer I know what I'd like it to be and if it is anywhere near this then I'm very happy okay. I'd like it to be um, listenable to comfortable approachable in a way that makes me sound across it mm-hmm. and knowledgeable. And if you can portray that, not only with your words, but with your style and your voice, someone that the audience will feel a connection with. Mm. I think that's really important. I, th- I, can, I can speak on behalf of the Q commentator audience to say you have that. Oh, very, oh, very, oh, very nice of you to say. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. 
It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. But I, I'll name a couple of other broadcasters then that I've always admired because of that. I love the broadcasting of Christopher Martin Jenkins. So soothing. Mm-hmm. So natural. And Angers has continued in that vein. Mm. And I would always quote those two as two wonderful broadcasters who just made me feel totally and utterly at ease mm. with the event that they were at and how across it they are. Mm. Uh, but there has to be another aspect to a commentator's voice. You've got to have that bit that cuts through. Yeah. That dynamism, that sense of confidence and performance. You've got big moments you've got to hit, haven't you? You absolutely have. And, you know, if I'm giving little bits of advice on that, I will always say to commentators that we're mentoring, say, look, you know, let the chest come out. Don't sit in a crouched position because you'll feel a little bit inhibited and a little bit shy when you broadcast. You need to, if you are a bit shy, and I think I am quite shy as a person, Mm -hmm. not with people I know, but if I go into a room of 100 people that I don't know, I'll always send my wife in first. <laughs> you, you, you get it started. Because, I mean, she was quite shy when I met her, but I think because of the jobs that she's done and she, she teaches now, so mm. you can't be shy in that profession. You know, in a, in a way, the job has thrust me there. And there's a little bit of me, you know, everything. I, I'm a bit of yin, a bit of yang. Yeah. I'm typical Gemini, if you like. <laughs> uh, you can always say, or oh, Miles will do this, but he, he won't do that. Yeah. And there is a bit of me that, you know, has... My mum and me wants to be the performer mm. as well as the, the, the sports addict. So, yeah, and that does come out as soon as the red light goes on. Mm. I love it. I mm. like it. But I'm not doing it because I want to be in the limelight. Yeah, because you need, you, yeah, because I guess there's an element of performance where you get, particularly on the acting side, where it's all about getting immediate reciprocity of, of mm. a feeling of positivity and all of that. And actually, I think there's an element of broadcasting where although that might come at some point, you're not doing it for that. You're doing it so that you can be the right voice to go with that picture and mm. know that you've, you've been part of the full package, I guess. Yeah, I'm doing it. I keep coming back to this for I'm doing it because I love the game. Yeah. And I love the people who play the game. And if I've been any part of that, and if there's any memory of that, that I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to be connected with, a commentary on a famous moment or mm. any moment. And I go back to the fact that, you know, in the so-called lesser games, they're just as important because for those players, that's their moment. Mm. That's their cup final. That's their situation where they're excelling. It's their family who are watching and wanting their names said with passion and correctly yeah. and with respect. Yeah. So all of those things, if I've been part of that in any way, then, you know, that's enough for me. And, it really is. And how much of the big moments occur to you that, because we all know how fast our brains can work and how quickly we realise we've got the big moment is happening. And in rugby, it can be happening from 70, 80 metres out, if I think of Chris Ashton's score against mm. Australia. And, and there's an awful lot going on in that. And you've got to give yourself the time and the room to get there and then know there's probably it's it's probably worthy of a line or two to round it off and and how quickly does your brain work how quickly do you do you either feel the pressure or not to find the right line to to nail oh yeah that's a that's a question away that you can't answer isn't it it's just it's there yeah it comes from somewhere yeah 
you trust, you're relaxed in that, are you? Yeah, I do. I, I, look, there's moments I've done, I think, if you're going to look critically at them, I'll probably say, yeah, I could have said that, I could have done that better. But you've got to learn as a commentator to live with that. Mm. It's instant journalism. There's, mm. It's the purest form of journalism. Mm. You're saying it as it happens. And that, to me, is the beauty of the job. It's also the connection with the sport. You know, I'm feeling the, the cold of the stadium or if it's hot there. and the, you know, On the day you're feeling the stifling atmosphere. You're part of the event. I wouldn't have wanted my career to go down, say, in the television route and sit in the truck. As valuable as those jobs are, I wouldn't feel that connection with the game. I want to be in the stand. I want to be part of it. So, yeah, and being able to convey that in the moment, you've just got to trust that those words will happen. Mm. And sometimes it's not words. Sometimes it's gaps. It's silences. It's letting the roar happen. And then when you get to the bar in the evening and you reflect, and we all beat ourselves up and we all critical and self-analytical you have to live and I think I've got better with this over the years you Mm. have to live with the fact that commentary is not an exact science you're always going to think of better lines after it's happened of course you are but the lines at the time are better because they are in the moment and you have the passion the words might be better afterwards because you had time to think about it but you won't deliver it in the same way and if you're lucky enough to get the right words at the time alongside that passion, then you really are cooking. I think that the worst I felt in a commentary box at the end of the game was 2001. I was going to say, which ones have you liked and which ones have you not? That was going to be my well, next question, re- so you're, you're sort of touching on that. Yeah, this really sticks out. 2001, Brian O'Driscoll try, or that whole Lions performance. And what an amazing day that was, just generally. Yeah. I mean, pre-match to see... Clive, Sir Clive as he is now, Ian, Sir Ian, you know, <laughs> something about that. Yeah. But uh, to see them in the studio next door and what it meant to them, yeah. surrounded by that sea of red and those fans, I mean, that put me in a very, very different place emotionally. I mean, there were tears all around us right. from ex-players, from fans. And, yeah. You know, so you, there you are, you've got to pick up your microphone and go here yeah. with a heart absolutely pounding out the chest. And then the game develops in the way that it does. You've got Jason's run at the touchline and you know, Scotty's try. Just amazing Lions yeah. moments. Yeah, but phenomenal memories. Phenomenal. But the one where I absolutely lost it, and there's no doubt about it, the <laughs> fan in me came out, was Brian's try. And I'm screaming, you beauty. Oh, you beauty as he goes over. And I'm thinking, hang on, that's not where I am as a broadcaster. Mm. I have to be impartial I have to be down the middle well that's interesting because there is you know I talked with Nick Mullins about this and there is elements of impartiality that are that are key and and he says you know it's not us and and that kind of thing but I guess there's a there's a bit of me that would forgive that on the basis that as a Lions as a as a as a broadcaster that's that's brought all the excitement in the way that Sky would with the with the trails and the eye dents and everything that you get on board you're up at whatever time you are to watch these games or watching them in the middle of the afternoon and and the build up is so good that you're on board with Sky to support the Lions against whoever so mm. the idea of of you beauty is probably 
with a bit of knowledge that that's that that the fans yeah. are with you on that journey. So you know, if it if it's England against Wales in a Six Nations game, mm. shouting "You beauty" probably really jars. Oh, a, oh. A, a well, lot. you'd never do it. Well, you wouldn't. And your but, natural feeling would be not to do it. Exactly. So I yeah. think I think that there's an element of all that that comes with doing that, but. Still, obviously, for your own standards, something that you're not happy with. Well, yeah, at the time, and I've thought about it since. I thought about it deeply that night. And I think with the Lions, because it's not a a world feed commentary, we're not broadcasting to the world, it is just to a domestic audience, essentially, in Britain and Ireland, you can let the halo slip a little bit. You are expected to be the fan on tour. Mm. But I was worried that in that key moment, I just let that go too far. Yeah. But then you come off air and you get messages from peers, people you really respect, about, or oh, love your commentary on the O'Driscoll try. Yeah. The, the show starts next week with, with that commentary and it's yeah. made a big, big thing of. And you start to think, well, actually, maybe it did reflect the day. Maybe it was the right thing to say. Maybe part of commentary is just verbalising what the fan is thinking who is sitting there watching, saying, yeah, I wanted to say that. Yeah. That's what we were doing. Yeah. We were leaping out of our chairs and saying, oh, you're beauty, Brian. Yeah. yeah. Moving on a little, uh, you obviously would have worked with a few co-commentators as you were, as you were coming through, but uh, Laurel and Hardy, Tom and Jerry. Ronnie, I know where this is going. Ronnie, Ronnie Barker and... Uh, <laughs> Morgan Wallace. Ronnie Corver, indeed. <laughs> Um, Although having, in tour we were in separate rooms, we weren't. <laughs> no, no, I want more combined. Yeah. Although people say you like a married couple. Well, they must be. And you know, handing over to the game with Miles Harrison and Stuart Barnes, and and it's. I think these days there aren't an awful lot of of partnerships in broadcasting that have you know gone on for as long as as you and Stuart have have been together. Um, you've been learned out to ITV for World Cups. You've worked with host broadcasters in Australia and New Zealand and it entertains me every time when they just call him Stu Barnes because <laughs> I've just got an idea it must wind him up. I don't know if it does or not. Um, <laughs> as a journalist, was was there any point when you first started working with Stuart after he'd come off the England playing field where you went, blimey, this is, this is Stuart Barnes. I'm, you know, this is exciting and this is going to be good. And then obviously then you go... Well, now this has become a wonderful relationship, and and who knows how long this is going to be. Probably at never at no point did you think it'll still be going twenty five years later. I did think when I first met him, I thought, "Blimey, Stuart!" But I did interviewed him a couple of times on a bit at the radio post match. He'd be an awkward. What's it? Yeah, like, I'm not sure. I particularly like you. And I, you know, we talked about this since. Goodness knows what he thought of me. By the way, he's perfectly <laughs> entitled to say that. Yeah. But that was his way. He was spiky and was opinionated. He might have been awkward, but he had views. And he was gold dust. When you put a microphone in front of him, he would say things that would make people sit up and think and listen and all of those things. So when he joined Sky, I could totally see that. But he started off as a presenter. And it became very apparent very quickly to those working around him that he wasn't going to be content. I, I, I don't think that was his role anyway, full yeah. stop. But uh, I, I, it was obvious he had views and he wanted to answer the questions. So he was starting to ask them and answer them as well. Right. Some people may say that's continued in commentary. Well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you wanted to unleash that kind of uh, opinion within the commentary itself. I think they gave uh, Stuart the chance to commentate on the Hong Kong Sevens 
back in 96. It was a classic sevens in as much that uh, Cullen and Lomu were on fire for New Zealand. So there's lots to talk about. We seem to hit it off in the commentary box and they said, right, that's what we're going to go with now. Those two seem to be really working well together. Mm. So that's how it all started. And I think that whole relationship between lead commentator, as we call them, and co-commentator, expert summariser, analyst, if you like. Play-by-play, play, if you're play on by the, play. the other side of the pond as your lead. Exactly. Was something that Sky really wanted to develop, saw the chance for more analysis within game. Uh, it's a relationship that, that developed, and I think a very important one, because I, in terms of the way... Uh, sport was being broadcast at the time. Mm. It gave a chance for a more modern approach. We mm. wanted to hear more from whoever was alongside the league commentator. I think that was a natural process. Well, I messaged you recently as I was working on a Pro 14 game for Sky alongside Stuart, and I did feel like I was sleeping with your wife. <laughs> um, and I was very conscious that, although obviously Stuart's a pro and, and you know we'll work with whoever there'd be a rhythm so ingrained between the two of you that surely my best bet would be to do as little as possible to upset him or spook him. I'm going on a bit as if he's some sort of gentle, small mammal, uh, without him sort of noticing that I wasn't you. was sort of conscious in my mind. Um, no, were... he's all right. He's all right when I'm not there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's probably relieved. And by the way, I would never have married him. Yeah. Just, for, just for that on the record. Excellent. That was uh, not so a Shag, consideration. Shag push off a cliff. Miles is going off a cliff. Uh, sorry, Stuart. Um, but you texted back, and I'm showing a slight indiscretion here, but it, I think it was worth sharing. You said, don't eat in front of him. He'll only start grabbing at your food, uh, portraying him as some kind of toddler or chimp. Um, so, so. That's not too far off from the mark. <laughs> um, but, he doesn't but, have a right to reply here. It's know, lovely. Isn't it wonderful? Um, but uh, I just thought, have you thought about, because you touched on it almost there, how daunting it can be for anybody else to feel like they're the Miles to his Stuart or that, that someone is being the Stuart to you as Miles? Gosh. Because uh, it, when it's a 25-year relationship or, or near yeah. as damn it, then, then it's sort of like, well, well, I'm not the other guy. Yeah, well, maybe. I, I can only talk from you know, my situation, you know, working with other co-coms. I would like to think, to go back to that point, one of my major roles is to, well, two things. One, the match is the most important thing. So don't get in the way of it just sort of ease it through in that journalistic way, the best way you can. Let it breathe. Let the whole occasion happen. And keep that as your priority. Next priority is to make sure that the co-commentator, or sometimes now two, mm -hmm. which is a really potent force, potent weapon, when you've got two ex-players yeah. working together, talking together, to develop the commentary in a way that you wouldn't be able to because of... What the point I made earlier about you know, certain aspects belong just to the ex-player. It's to allow them to feel at their most comfortable to do that. And it really is my task to, to do that. So if they're feeling, oh, I, I, you know, I'm not Stuart Barnes alongside Miles. You know, they're, if they're feeling that kind of inhibition, then I'm failing. I'm, I'm not getting them in the right place, either with the chats before we go on air sure. or the way in which I'm broadcasting. Yeah. I'm not allowing them to be themselves because that's what all best broadcasters are, themselves on air. Yeah. And I was fascinated actually a few years ago and, and it was probably when I was first on the scene and we were in 
the Alistair Hignall commentary room, as it's called, in the West Stand of Twickenham. And yourself and Stuart were in in a little corner and you were thinking, we're watching the team arriving out the window and, and having the sandwiches and the lovely soup we get. Um, but I overheard you both quietly just talking through the opening couple of minutes of the game. And it was as if the game was on, but the two of you were just having that chat so that you roughly knew what you were going to be suggesting as, as a couple of, you know, not even necessarily questions because you don't want to always, I, I, I'm always wary of not wanting to interview your co-commentator because I think that's slightly bizarre. But oh, you make, absolutely. You make a comment and then they're going to come in with a comment. And it, But I just thought it's really interesting that almost a bit like if you fail to prepare, prepare, prepare to fail. Yeah. And I just thought with all the years of experience, it's the reason why these two are pretty good at what they do is because they're still sat here just making sure they're running through the few things they're going to talk about at the top as the teams run out mm. because it's important. Now, absolutely. I mean, nothing scripted about commentary. That's why I love it. Mm. And you should never script. I did it once. I did it once and I learned the hard way. You'd script the top, wouldn't you? Yes, I'll come on to that second. Yeah. But I scripted an actual commentary line. Ooh, okay. That when something happened in the commentary, I was going to pull out this piece of card and I was going to... and. It was... And ring a bell. Oh, <laughs> and I wish I'd never done it, because as I was doing it, I was thinking, this sounds I can awful. Hear it, really, and it okay. was Joe Dury, the tennis player at Wimbledon for the Beeb, and it was her f- going to be a final game. Uh, a terrific tennis player for British tennis and sport. Lovely woman, you yeah. Know? And you just wanted her, I, well, I wanted her as this youthful broadcaster to have her final moment with some tip-top words yeah. on the radio. And I started waffling on about something about ships in the night and harbours. And I thought, where is this going? It felt like a good idea at the time. And I knew it had gone badly. And I thought, oh, no, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. Yeah. But I thought, learn, move on. And then, you know, how they do those Wimbledon diaries in the papers the next day. Somebody had picked up on it, quite rightly so. Oh. And they said, yeah, Miles Harrison, quite like him as a commentator, you know, really enjoys tennis commentary. Uh, at Wimbledon, but what was he doing yesterday? He was absolutely right to say <laughs> yeah. it uh, in the article. And I learned at that moment, never, ever write anything. You can think scenarios through. Of course you can. There are moments that are likely to happen. And when you're sort of having a shave or in the shower in the run-up to a match that week, you're, you're living the game. You're thinking yeah. about all those situations. But you're not remembering words to say at the time. Because if you are, you're not actually watching the exact moment. I mean, there's no way Kenneth Wilson home was thinking that the show the week before the World Cup final 66, no, was it? of course. There's no way. No. So, and that's the best commentary line of all time. Yeah. We all agree on that. I think any, any commentator, or, well, I can't speak for everybody, but if you took a survey of commentators, yeah, what's yeah. the greatest sports commentary of all time, we'd say, well, I mean, that just summed up the moment yeah. so absolutely. Well, for it to have lasted 60 years is, yeah. is, is pretty impressive as yeah. well. So the bit at the top, I will... I write in what I call chat speak. And when I talk to young commentators about the art of scripting, mm. and actually in commentary, not scripting, but you know, for broadcasting, the ability to write in a chatty way is so key, to make yeah. it sound like it's not read. But I like that first 20, 30 seconds, certainly of a big game. Mm. I love that moment as well. Just to set the stall out. Yeah. Get me going. Like, again, to, if I may, draw a parallel with playing. It's like 
taking the kick off. Yeah, it's like, and or, or my my one I was going to start setting the table. It's like, yes, it's, I like that. It, yeah, you know, you're, you're just like shine yeah. the glasses, get yeah. them all ready. Yeah, you're in good, commentary terms, no, to go. totally get that. Yeah, cricketer would say, just get to ten. Yeah, and then I can start to play the shots I want to play. So make that start now. Sometimes you're told that you're going to get 30 seconds before we go. And it's all very regimented, that. And it has to be because the graphics, you know, the bits that we see on screen have to come in a certain point. You're having World Feed join you for a test match at dropping points. So the floor p- manager is waiting to cue the referee. Absolutely. The PA is talking. It's all being counted down. So it has to be quite regimented. You t- talk to the director. Who do you want? in conjunction with the co-commentators, the players, when they run out, who are you going to focus on, who are you going to talk about? They have to know where you're going to go, otherwise it's not going to gel together. Yeah. It's the only bit that's a bit... Uh, it's a bit of a recipe. Mm. Uh, you just throw it all, up all in the air. The director does it at kick-off time. There's nothing too pre-planned there. Just live with it. Let's just go with yeah. it. But to get to kick-off in shape, it has to be planned. So that's the bit I would... Write as a script the first 20, 30 seconds, but be prepared to not use it as a script because mm. that time can be cut just like that. Yeah. Sorry, Marge, we've only got 15 before we need to get to team graphic. We've gone yeah. slightly over on that. I've started to bullet point mine a bit more than, than full script so that I can yes. jump one or two and get, make sure I get a top line in and almost as the 30 seconds goes in, I'm giving more detail. But if I've had to jump out pretty early, then at least I set the scene. Absolutely right. I, and that's, that's, but that's a difference that. I've learned in the last sort of 18 months, really, and I've been doing it for eight years. So <laughs> it's one of those. I yeah. actually, I'm, you know, I've been cut short a few times, so I need to start doing that. Yeah. And that's where I was, I think, early days of Sky. I just wasn't flexible in that way. Yeah even though there were certain aspects of my commentary that people would have said, yeah, that's going well, you're sounding good. But, you know, if you look back, then you would see now all of those sort of mistakes. And also writing for the team sheet or the team pictures, that has to be written in a way that's very conversational. Mm. If you are going to write it, or you're just going to have little bullet points, but they have to be editorially strong. You just can't... I don't like it when commentators don't take the first part of their commentary seriously. Mm. I don't feel in safe hands. I don't feel like they've considered the editorial aspects of the week well enough. You've, uh, you mentioned then sort of some of the technical stuff there. Um, what do you think makes a good commentary... What do you think makes a good commentator? <laughs> his, eye, his eyes are rolling. Where do you start? I mean, I, <laughs> but it might be—it might just be a couple of you know things out there. I've been fortunate enough through the first series of Q Commentator to find that there are a lot of up-and-coming people that are listening and and taking yeah. taking notes. So there's a few of us that have got different levels of experience that that obviously mm. people go, ah, oh, that's interesting to know. Or okay, um, stop me if I go on too long. All right, all right. Yeah. First things first. Have you? during the course of that commentary, journalistically, because that's why you're there. You're there as a, uh, an unpaid specky, yes, but also as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Have you reflected the stories that all the scribes mm. have gone into in more detail? My so, version of that is always as well what my dad always used to say to me about exams. Read the question. Yes. Because after 40 minutes of writing and going off down the journey that you started writing about, you go back and go, I'm not answering what? what the actual question is <laughs> and then you're yeah. like oh no i yeah. sort of misinterpreted it and yeah I you, to remind you've wanted it to go in a certain way yeah. and that's the danger of over prepping yeah because you could have thought about it so much yeah and you've got yourself in a place i know how this game is going to be played of course you don't know it's going mm. to be played yeah so you need to sort of you need to re- remain a little bit take some take that step back a little bit aloof yeah. in that journalistic way mm. don't get too i mean 
passionate, yes, mm. get close there, go as deep as you want to in that sense, but just hold yourself back journalistically to have that vision. So you can say things that journalistically you should be saying. I mean, on the whole idea of opinions, because we're talking about commentary and opinions here mm. and, and, and techniques and what you shouldn't, shouldn't be able to say maybe, I always see it as th- the top line of the Olympic rings, three circles, right? Okay. One of those circles is the commentator. Yeah. Lead commentator. And I, what belongs to me as a lead is pretty obvious. Name calling and all of that and delivering the story. And also... I call it ID, but if you want to call them names, well, that's <laughs> yeah. up to you. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I write down about the way they look. That's why nobody can read my writing. No, I know, yeah. yeah. GP's writing, yeah. They don't want to see what I've written about them. Yeah. But... Uh, so you've got that area. And within that, yes, you can have certain opinions because the paying spectator who watches rugby week in, week out and is dedicated to the sport just like you is perfectly entitled to say things from the stand about their team and the opposition that are rational, considered because they know the game. And that's an area as a commentator you can go into. Now, on the far end of these three, you've got the, you've got the, uh, the ex-player. Mm. And there are certain players that just don't... But there's certain areas there that just ideas, concepts, thoughts that just don't belong to me as a non-player. And the alarm bell should ring if you go anywhere near those. Mm. And I do hear these days a lot of league commentators straying into areas which do not belong to them. They belong to the ex-player. You've got someone alongside you who's been used them. Mm. And then in the middle, there's obviously crossover because it's not an exact science, as I said before. And there's certain things the ex-player wants to say as a fan and there's certain things that the glorified fan, the commentator, wants to say about playing. And you're entitled to in the middle. Other aspects of commentary? Uh, There's so many. Accuracy. Yes. Well, that's come up a couple of times. Accuracy. There's no point doing the job unless you are absolutely as close to being right all the time as you could possibly be. Hmm. It can wear, you know, war with me when I first started, when you miss an ID or that kind of thing, and you go, ah, it's the one thing I'm here to get right. But you have to realise that your aim is accuracy, but 100% accuracy isn't realistic. Mm. I think that's very, very true. Uh, but you've got to try and get there. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to immerse yourself. This is what I mean about dedicating your life to it. There's rugby all over the world happening all the time. You've got to watch it all if you can. You've got to be that person that says, there's n- if you want to get on, there's nobody going to watch more than me. Mm. There's nobody, when you actually get to do it, there's nobody going to talk to the people that matter. And sometimes you have to rein back on those conversations because you've got to respect you're in their office, you're in their time. Yeah. You've got to judge the moment. It's inappropriate to dig for too much at certain times. So you just, you've got to know when just to hold back. But equally, you've got to, when you're presented with the opportunity to mine for the information, mm. you've got to make sure you have it because that gives you that reliability as a broadcaster to be accurate more often than not. Yeah. And be yourself. Yeah, be yourself because the best broadcasters are have the confidence. You know, if someone's backing you to do it, they want you to be you. And in fact, in commentary, that's it's almost impossible to be somebody else. You can maybe try, and I hear or have heard commentators. You can see them having influences from mm. elsewhere, 
But I think in one of your earlier podcasts, mm. Barry Davis said, I'd rather fail being Barry Davis than be Barry Davis trying to be somebody Barry else. Barry David Coleman, yeah. Yeah, and that kind of uh, genuine, natural approach just will make you a better broadcaster. Yeah, 100%. Um, we've talked an awful lot, and it's been fascinating. But just, just a couple more before we finish. Um, your favourite part of the job, perhaps, and I'm, and I'm asking that question in two parts. One, perhaps the romance, which I'm calling it, maybe it's the friends you make, getting to watch sport travel in the world, and, and the other, perhaps the technical, what, what you enjoy about the process. What, what do you get out of it the most on the, on the romantic and the technical side? Oh, gosh. On the romantic side, obviously, it is to be in position to be touchline or as close as possible in the stand to great sporting moments or or games that you just could only dream of being at. Mm-hmm. And that's what it all boils down to for me. Uh, having said that, and I will always keep saying this is what I believe in, any game of rugby is important as the next for me. I can be as excited going to any match, not mm-hmm. just a Lions test, because... That's the game for me. So, uh, and I suppose that takes me a little bit into technical because I'm enjoying the commentary just as much and the act of performing and that connection with the match. So, yeah, in summary, that's, that's where I'm at. But if I had to boil it down to one word, I'd say people. Hmm. Okay, nicely people. done. I've just loved being with the people that play sport and love sport. In terms of the ever-changing broadcasting landscape, BT Sport have obviously taken the Premiership, which was once you know a major part of Sky, the Pro 14s on Premier Sports, as we record this. These things change so regularly. Um, Europe's gone from Sky. Now, we know that these things, as I say, they can change in the space of three or four years when, when rights contracts end and, and those sorts of things. How do you view things now and where sport is for a broadcaster, for punters... Do you think it's a confusing landscape? It's a very different landscape, isn't it? Yeah. Because uh, you've obviously been a commentator who has had 25 years at Sky, as oh. I say, and the rugby's there. And it's, I think, one of the... I think you have what may in future years be seen as one of the last, quote, sort of full-time rugby positions. You've got Nick and Ali who are at, at BT and, and they're as full-time as it gets, I imagine, but... That, that contract's been going, what, seven, eight years, if, it, if it's that much. And I just wonder whether those roles are going as people are ever more freelancers, contracts, or, or, or sports, rather, are split into different contracts across various broadcasters. So actually, no one employs one person for, for an ongoing length of time. And I just, I thought it was an interesting question to ask you as someone that's, that's had that, that privilege and, and that great position, but but can see how, how it's changing. Yeah, you've summed it up really, Nick. I mean, that, that's the way the whole thing is moving because there is so much that is covered now by different broadcasters, yes, all over the world. And I've been very privileged and blessed to have the time to dedicate to the profession and the craft, and I'm very grateful for that, to have lived through those times. And you know, long may that continue and... I hope that's still the way for those entering the profession. But if it's not, and if there are to be changes and things are to be looked at differently, then 
I like to try and put positive spins on things. I like to send out positive messages to people who might be listening to this, thinking about doing this job. The opportunity to do it is so much more. Mm. I mean, you have proved that in the way that you are involved in so many different aspects of covering the sport now. I mean, you've grasped it, and it's to your great credit that you have. Thank you. Uh, But, you know, anyone coming into the profession would be right to use that as a model to say, look, you know, I'm not just going to try and do this. I Mm. might see that as an end game, as a final goal. Yeah. But there are so many ways to prove that I can report, commentate, present, whatever you want to do. So many different forms of media. It's an opportunity. Yeah. And I think now... Yeah, as you say, the world of opportunity is as, as great as it's ever been with everything in, in the areas that it is. Um, before I ask you about your your last dream gig, as is the nature of, uh, of Q Commentator, it would be remiss of me, I think, not to ask about perhaps one or two of your favourite memories, either of sporting moments on the field or, or even any in the commentary box that you care to tell us about before we get to, to your last your last dream gig. So what do you want? Sporting memories? Yeah. Well, just generally or, or well, commentary one, box first? Which, well, yeah, either, whatever. Either. Uh, one of each. One of each. We are we are at Mars's house, by the way, and the rain is teeming down outside. Uh, if you can day. hear that in the background, great day to chat. If you can, <laughs> yeah, if you can hear that in the background, but it's beautifully atmospheric. Anyway, do carry on. From the commentary box. Oh, so sport for choice. It's a horrible decision know, to I have know, to I make. Know. But I'm starting to come round to 2017 Lions. I really am. Yeah. Okay. Just because. A, it's the Lions, and that meant so much to me growing up. Yeah. The fact that it's this, this unique side, the old cliche, but England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales come together. And I've had the privilege of going around twice now as a commentator. Yeah, six tours. Six tours. Quite amazing. And 97, the first one was very special. But I now go for 2017 because of the way it finished. It was such a bizarre noise in that stadium. I was fortunate enough to be there. and it was I know. Just, But there's always a bit of me that, I, I think I'm sort of with you, but there's a bit of me that goes, but we, we almost missed the final crescendo of that, yeah. of that game. Because and that I felt they, really flat yeah, at the time. Yeah, it was just utterly yeah. weird. I, I, third Lions test in that evening. You don't want to be around me. I'm flat anyway. I've looked forward to it for four years. And it's over. And suddenly it's over. It's, it's a bit like... End of Boxing Day, you know. You, you oh, it's feel, the it's, it's acting terms. It's the after-show blues. It's, yeah, yeah. And and I'm never I'm never good on on those nights. I, I, do, I do like to go out and have a let your hair down after the end of a, a test match or a series on tour. But but third Lions Test, I mean, I, I you know table for two at you know, the pie shop for me. Thanks yeah, very much. Yeah. You know, I was fortunate enough with 2013. My wife came out and joined me at the end of that tour with my daughter and. She said, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And she was still buzzing. She was still, hu- you know, not hug her. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to say. <laughs> she might well have been. But jet lagged was what I was looking for. And she landed with, with my daughter on that Saturday morning. We'd gone to Sydney for the third test. And they were, they were just running on empty, but they were just buzzing after the game. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I don't think I can. And actually, when I said that, they jet lag hit them, and they probably thought, you know what, we'll just go and have a pie yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we did, and uh, it was a great memory. But 2017, to get back to the point, it was it was that moment where there was black and red players mixed together in the picture at the end of the game, 
side by side, the reaction of Reed to Warburton to what was a very controversial moment for a series to be decided by the referee doing what he did. Yeah. Now, you can argue he was right, you can argue he was wrong, it was his decision and it has to be respected. And it was totally respected by Kieran Reed mm. in a way that was, yeah. you know, rugby could be very, very proud of that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm going to go with that one mm. as maybe both, maybe yeah. as a sporting memory and as a commentary memory as well. Yeah, that's beautifully done. Uh, so then it is, uh, I'm not retiring you early, but uh, but as and when the, the day comes, it uh, it can be perhaps a, a week or a weekend or it's it's the concluding moment of a tour which i i dare suggest it might well be but uh, mm-hmm. but it's your answer um your last dream gig miles harrison well in rugby it's always going to be the lions from what i've just said yeah if there was one thing i had to do right at the very end it would be a lions test uh in new zealand probably Probably, although I, I've enjoyed all the tours. Mm. They all have a unique flavour. And I think with the Lions tours, it almost it it's still great because it's any one of the three Southern Hemisphere teams. You just want them to be strong, don't you? Yes. And yeah. That's the hope. You do. For, that's the hope for me for for the next one in 2021 is that the Springboks get their act together and a, and a oh a, they will a full force to be reckoned with. But uh, if there's a gig that I want to do that's not rugby, hmm. I think it would probably this is difficult because I've been so long in this rugby world yeah um, and I could have gone down the football route I know that and I'd have really enjoyed it because uh, I love the game uh, cricket yeah I think it would be cricket I think it would be cricket radio cricket because I, I suppose that's the one thing that I didn't get to do at BBC Radio Sport and I think well I know that at the end of my time there, I was told, look, if you do stay, if you don't take this guy off, you, we can't, it can't happen overnight. You have to earn your spurs. I know you've done it locally, but you haven't done any sort of major national cricket. But that's an area we'd like to point you towards. Mm. So and, you knew that that was what you were mm, letting go. And TMS. Institution, you know, isn't it? Institution. Back to school. I was under the desk listening. You know yeah. What are you doing, Harrison? Well... The cricket's self is running through them, sir. <laughs> Why didn't you say turn it up? We'll all listen. You know, I just grew up on TMS and would you know that that's something that you would be so. But there's others that do it and do it so well, and my yeah. career's gone in a different direction. But I suppose radio cricket commentary would be something that I think my style would be quite yeah suited to. But if the to quote Joe Dury, if the boat has sailed, then. <laughs> It's gone, hasn't it? But yeah, I'm not complaining. I thought for a moment you were about to quote your enormous prose at the end of the game with Joe Deering, but Well, I, I would remember it. I've got rid of it from <laughs> it the memory. written on a card. I, I wish I hadn't finished on that note, but, uh, but it seems that I am. Mars, your, your passion certainly comes through from your love of sport as a kid and through, obviously, all of the time you spent at BBC Radio Sport and, and then on to Sky. And I think you will always have that place for so many rugby fans, for so many Lions tours and being that soundtrack. And I think for for the for the time you spent with Bill, with Bill McLaren, it certainly comes through in the warmth that you show on and off the mic. Um, and uh, and I wish you many more years of successful broadcasting and uh, and thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Nick.
Well, he really is a classy operator, isn't he? Uh, the brilliant Miles Harrison there. Um, I really like Miles's comments about broadcasting being one of the purest forms of journalism. Uh, you're saying it as it happens, which he said, which, uh, which I really identify with. And, of course, his advice to make sure you stand clear of the rest of the competition when he said you need to just watch it all, watch everything that's out there. Um, now I imagine a healthy contract from Sky means you can spend your week watching it all, uh, but it's certainly something to aspire to if you want to just find that point of difference um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation please do leave a review on iTunes and make some noise on Twitter if that's also your thing uh, you can also find the Q Commentator group on Facebook under my rugby media page should you wish to chat with fellow commentary fans um, that's it for this week it's our live special next week with a Scottish voice that has called a winning World Cup drop goal and been the voice of rugby across the BBC for many decades Ian Robertson is now retired but he is a man who can spin a yarn um, so don't miss that one Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you next time. This has been a Rugby Media production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.